Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're looking at the opening verses of Matthew 17 today. Last Lord's Day, we saw that the phrase that you may remember from chapter 16, uh, from that time Jesus began, remember reading that last Sunday, echoed the same phrase in chapter 4. So in last week's passage, we read, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples, and that echoed the uh, passage early in his public ministry where it says that from that time Jesus began to preach. Uh, In our text for today, uh, listen for another echo from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, I'll ask you to pinpoint that echo from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in a moment. Notice this is a piece of historical narrative. So notice the basic elements of narrative that are going to help us to understand this passage. You'll hear the mention of a setting or location of the event. Uh, Characters will be named. Action will take place. And notice the tone or the mood of the account as well. These elements will help us identify the theme or the main idea. So let's hear this uh, word for us today from God's word, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Well, what sentence did you hear in this text that's... uh, Identical to one found in an important scene in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Tell no one. That uh, comes up in earlier in, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, think uh, back to the very beginning of his ministry, to the event that marked him out in public. Okay, very public event, 
Yes. Yes, his baptism. And the father saying to him, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We have an echo of that in this text that we're looking at today. Some Bible translations print Jesus' words in red ink. I don't know of any that print direct speech from God the Father in a different color ink. We could do that here. What color do you think we, we would want to color those, those words? Any ideas? Let me all. What, what color do you think God's words ought to be printed in? You have a favorite color? Brown? Okay. Or chocolate. <laughs> How about a chocolate brown? That would make them very appealing, right? Uh, well, whether we color them or not, these are the only two instances I'm aware of in, in Matthew's Gospel where we read direct speech from the Father. And he says almost the identical words in each, in each place. Um, I, I always like to ask why questions. Uh, about a ba- uh, of a Bible passage, and so we could ask, well, why? Why does God the Father speak only at these two times, his baptism and here in the transfiguration, and why does he say almost exactly the same thing? So I want you to, want you to think about that. He does add something in our text, right? You've already seen that. He adds a command. We'll want to notice that as well. Uh, you note the setting of our text already. Uh, so we want to note that and think about that. When you think of the characters in this brief narrative, isn't this perhaps the most unusual set of characters anywhere in the gospel? I mean, we're, we're used to seeing the, the presence of the disciples, of course, and, and you'll notice, by the way, that we're given their perspective in this passage. We see things as they see them. Uh, that that's you, you should be sort of pulled into this passage and seeing things from their perspective. And of course, you expect that Jesus is the central character. It's from their perspective, but what happens is really about Jesus. So he's the central character. The personal involvement of God the Father that we just mentioned is is unusual, of course. Uh, but there are two characters who appear here that don't appear anywhere else in a narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, who shows up here that we do not see in any other scenes. Moses and Elijah. Now that really piques our interest, doesn't it? What are Moses and Elijah doing in this scene? Why do they show up here? And don't forget the, the tone or the, the mood of this text. You know, what... what what emotions do you feel as you really concentrate on this text? What, what do you think the, the disciples are feeling as they experience this? What might you have felt if you'd been there at that time? And, and above all, you want to ask, okay, why has God directed my attention to this text today? Okay, he, he's directing your attention to this text. So what is he telling you? What truth is being communicated to you that you need to hear? How does the, how does the Spirit of God intend to use this passage to, uh, to affect you? 
uh, your mind, your emotions, your will, your very, be- very being. Well, let's walk through the text uh, briefly together. It begins with a time uh, designation after six days. Now, it's very unusual to see something like that in the Gospels. They, they very rarely give a specific time reference like that. So that sort of causes you to uh, perk up your ears for a minute. And, and probably the, the function of that is to connect this with what goes before it. Of course, the original had no chapter and verse breaks. Uh, so this after six days ties us right to what's happened before at the end of chapter 16. And, and just as a A quick review, there in the end of chapter 16, Jesus has told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of the Sanhedrin. I must be killed and be raised again. And then he added to that, what we could say is, you must do the same thing. Nobody can follow me unless they're willing to take up their cross, deny themselves. So I I think that our our text means to to remind us of that, that it's in that setting, it's right after he begins in the most direct way that we've seen in the gospel so far, to, to talk about suffering, his suffering and their suffering. It's right after that that we have this experience. And I think that's purposeful. Uh, So, uh, let's say what is going on here. He takes Peter and James, John his brother, and takes them up a high mountain. We're not told why he chooses these three. Uh, Now, it is worth noting, perhaps, that these three will be very influential in the establishing of the church. Peter, we noted earlier in studying chapter 16, is going to preach at Pentecost, and there's going to be 3,000 Jews saved. He's going to preach to the first Gentiles who are converted. Uh, so he has a very, a very important role. James will be the first of the apostles to be martyred, to be executed for the sake of Jesus Christ. And John, of course, you know, James's brother, John, is, is going to be the one who gives us that marvelous gospel of John and the letters and, and the book of Revelation, the last book of the canon. So, so certainly they, they are going to be in a position where they can communicate this event uh, to others, and they do that. So he takes them up this mountain. We, we notice the setting because... Uh, Well, have you ever noticed mountains in the Bible? What are some of the mountains that you've come across in Scripture? Anybody name a mountain that you've read about in the Bible? What? Sinai. Sinai. That's certainly a significant mountain, right? Is there that the law is given? Anybody think of another one? Pardon me? Horeb. Horeb, which is probably another name for Sinai. Any others? Ararat. Ararat. Mountain on which the ark came to rest. We've seen mountains before in the Gospel of Matthew. Not named. The Sermon on the Mount was on a mountain, right? 
it's interesting that that significant things often happen. God makes significant revelations of himself associated with mountains. Now, why might that be? You know, could, could it be that, that that imagery of being elevated, of being high in terms of geography is representative of uh, the elevated importance of what God is communicating in these various places. Uh, certainly, this is a, an important place of revelation that we have in our text, isn't it? We don't know for sure which, which mountain this is, by the way. Uh, if you go to the Israel today, you'll be shown the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost certainly not that, uh, even though tradition says it is. Uh, we don't know, and I think perhaps there's uh, some reason in that as well. Uh, the apostles, the early church, uh, did not make pilgrimage to, pilgrimages to places. That they didn't identify places as holy ground. That the church is all about communicating the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. And so you don't see the apostles or early believers making pilgrimages, finding all these places uh, the way that tourists sometimes do in Israel today. Uh, ours is a living faith, and it's not tied to any place. Uh, God inhabits his people through his spirit, doesn't he? So he is wherever his, his people are. Well, with no introduction or buildup, really, we come to verse 2. And we're told that Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, this, this really defies uh, human expression, doesn't it? The, these words in the text point to this, but it's really difficult for us to, uh, to really take in what exactly happens here. Uh, he is changed in some way in his appearance, his face shone like the sun, we're told, and his clothes became white as light. He, he no longer looks like an ordinary human being. Right? He, his disciples are no longer seeing him through light that is reflected on his person, on his clothing. They are seeing him through light radiating out from him. It's hard to imagine exactly what that, that looked like. Uh, of course, you're used to seeing God associated with light in the scriptures, right? There, there are a whole host of, of passages that we could look to in that regard. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 4, verse 6, the psalmist says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, or Yahweh. The, the idea that look on us, and shine on us, in a sense, he, he's saying. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 89, blessed are the people who know the festal shall to walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face. Uh, Psalm 104, you are clothed, speaking to God, with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. And we could go to Isaiah 9, which is actually uh, quoted by Matthew, you may remember, from chapter 4. 
uh, where Matthew says that Jesus went and lived by Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, here it is, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And Matthew's saying that great light is Jesus in his preaching and his ministry. Uh, we can multiply those, those passages of, of, uh, of God associated with light and Jesus associated with light. Uh, Simeon, the old man who blesses uh, Jesus in the temple, uh, speaks of him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. John, in his beginning to his gospel, perhaps reflecting on this, this event that we're considering, says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He says later, the true light, meaning Jesus, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. Jesus himself calls himself the light of the world. You probably remember that from John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says in John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And even after, after his earthly ministry, Jesus appeared in the context of light to convert Saul. You remember Saul is on his way to Damascus to arrest and afflict believers. We read, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and he falls to the ground and he cries out, and from that light comes the voice, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And of course, we could go to Revelation, John's uh, book of prophecy, and see there in the first chapter that incredible view of Jesus that John is given there, where we read in words very much like our text, that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In some way, the veiling of Jesus' humanity is pulled back slightly to reveal his divine being. That's really what's happening here, isn't it? We're getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, that glory that he had before the incarnation, now veiled in flesh. Jesus is giving his disciples, right after telling them that he is going to suffer and die and that they are called to lives of, lives of suffering, he is giving them a glimpse of his glory. Think about how that's going to affect the way they view their own call, the way it should affect your call. Well, of course, that's not the end of the revelation here. Now Moses and Elijah appear, and the context clearly seems to be they, they appear as witnesses to who Jesus is. Uh, Moses, of course, the, the mediator of the Old Covenant, the one through whom God gave the law. Okay, Elijah, that great prophet that called down fire from heaven, that was actually even taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. It's Moses and Elijah there that witness, in a sense, to who he is. At last has come the one that they looked for in their earthly lives. 
And God has given them this marvelous opportunity to bear witness to that. Well, it's too much uh, for Peter. He, he's, he's always got to talk. Right? He's always got to say something. And so he speaks then and reflecting on this mysterious experience there in verse 4 and says, well, why don't we set up camp here, is sort of what he's saying. Uh, let, let's make three little mini tabernacles. Maybe his mind is going back to the uh, building of tabernacles and the wilderness wanderings. Maybe he's thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. At any rate, that there seems to be the idea, I want to prolong this. I want to just stay here for a while. Uh, that, of course, is not Jesus' intent. And so in terms of Jesus and in terms of the Father, his, his suggestion is ignored, isn't it? In fact, he's interrupted there in verse 5. He's still speaking. And this bright cloud overshadows them. And they hear a voice from the cloud that we mentioned earlier, the bright cloud, the cloud of brightness, literally, is what it says here. And, and of course, as soon as you, you read that, you probably remember the, the manifestation of God to his people in the Old Testament in a fiery cloud, Exodus chapter 13. Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And uh, Sinai was mentioned earlier, and there the glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of of the people of Israel. And Ezekiel has a similar vision, a similar element in this vision in chapter 1. I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. What's being communicated then by the appearance of this fire in our text? By the appearance of this bright cloud, this shining cloud that, that seems to envelop uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, well, surely it's that this one who is not only human, but he is divine, is being identified with the cloud that signifies the presence of the Lord Yahweh. And not only that, then we have that voice speaking that we mentioned before. This is obviously the Father's voice. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. That appears at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes on him to begin his ministry. And now, isn't it significant that it comes right after Jesus has declared that he is going to take the path of suffering that's going to lead to the cross? And it's as if the, the father is saying, I approve of what my son is doing. I am well pleased with him. I am well pleased with him. Jesus is being affirmed in his calling by the Father himself. And the command, of course, is addressed to the disciples primarily, isn't it? Listen to him. You don't need to be talking, Peter, right now. You need to be listening to your teacher to your master. 
And it's at that moment, at, at the appearance of this divine cloud, this glory cloud, that we read in verse 6 that when the disciples hear this voice, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The, the natural response of human beings to a manifestation of God's presence like this is fear. And they evidently remain in that position of fear until Jesus touches them, perhaps reassuring them with his touch and bidding them to rise. When they lifted up their eyes, verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. And he's the one where their focus is to be, isn't he? He's the one there to listen to. Well, they seem to apply that right away. They, they do give attention to Jesus' teaching. And so after he's commanded them not to tell anyone of the vision, they don't know enough yet to talk about this. They don't understand fully his work. And so they, they should not talk about it yet. But they do have a question for him, verse 10. And the disciples ask them, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That may be. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about this. That it, and she suggested that, well, it's because they've just seen Elijah. And that makes perfect sense. You know, they've just seen Elijah. And uh, they've, they're familiar with the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they thought they had everything all figured out. They knew exactly what was God, God was going to do in delivering Israel eventually, and they made much of the fact that Elijah was to come first. And so maybe they're saying, well, you know, clearly you're being revealed as the Messiah, but has Elijah shown up? Uh, are we to assume that this appearance of Elijah satisfies that requirement? That could have been in their mind as well. And Jesus reorients their, their thinking here, doesn't he? And you probably already anticipated it from what we've read earlier in Matthew about uh, John the baptizer. He says, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. He's speaking of John, of course, who came in the spirit of Elijah, as his father uh, said at his, at his circumcision. He came in the spirit of Elijah, and so he fulfilled this prophecy and they did to him whatever they pleased. He means, of course, a reference to John's suffering and death that we read of earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus brings them right back again to that theme of suffering. So, so the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. They're listening and they're understanding. Now, you've probably already noted uh, the truths about, of this text and begun to think about why God has given it to you this day, but let me, let me give you a few summary pointers. Uh, truths about God, especially about God the Son, truths about God's assembly, the church, which is you, if you are his children by the gift of faith. First, look at Jesus in our text again. Who is he? With the disciples, here in our text, you've been shown that he is no mere human being. Jesus has revealed to you here that in the incarnation he is veiled, but not surrendered his divine nature. 
It's very important for you to hold on to. He is, in the words of the Nicene Creed, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Or better yet, here the inspired word of God described Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, why does, why does Jesus choose just this moment to reinforce that, to, to impress it upon his disciples and us? Was well, because, as we recalled a few minutes ago, of what he must do. This is coming just before he begins the journey to Jerusalem and his death. You see the significance of the transfiguration in, re, in relation to that? Disciples are, in our text are not quite ready to make the connection, but, but you are. Jesus has made it clear to you here that he will suffer both as fully God and fully human. You've seen his glory. That glory is veiled when he comes down from the mountain, but it's still there. Think of that truth as you read the rest of Matthew's gospel. Jesus' glory is there, but hidden from view as he heals the sick with his word and touch. Jesus' glory is there as he teaches his students and as he blesses children. Jesus' glory is there as he is rejected by those with earthly power and wealth. Jesus' glory is there as he is unjustly arrested and condemned, as he is mocked and beaten, as he is crucified and buried. Your glorious Lord, whose very being shines with light as the sun, entered into darkness and death, for the sake of his own, his church. Do you fear at the sight of that love? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. But the glorious good news, of course, is that death and the curse could not hold the Lord of glory. And so here's another cause for wonder. As Jesus suffered fully human and fully God, he was glorified as fully human and fully God. 
In the words of Psalm 16 that Peter preaches from, his being was not abandoned to the grave. It was not possible for this Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' physical body was raised and glorified to a greater extent even than the disciples saw in the transfiguration. And in his glorified state, Jesus does not leave behind the humanity that he shares with you as his people, those for whom he lived and died. Read again of his resurrection appearances. He's not a spirit or a ghost, but with a living human body. Read again in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John's description of our Lord in human form, but so glorified that John fell at his feet like one struck dead. It is Jesus, fully God and fully human, who is worshipped and adored in eternity. To God and to the Lamb, I will sing, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, who is the great I am. While millions join the theme, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. Now, what does it mean for you, as people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, given faith in Jesus Christ, for the glory of the Father, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that you, who have been called out of darkness into light to be the church, are the objects of this prayer spoken by our Lord in John 17. This is Jesus praying for you. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You who are in Christ, united with him by faith, Suffer in this earthly life. You deny yourself for his sake. You crucify yourself for his sake. But all that you gladly endure, for you are destined for glory. Paul says this in Romans 8. So then, brothers, in light of all this, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What Paul is saying here is that since you've been called to glory, live like those who are called to glory. Why would you live as if you owed anything to your sin nature when Jesus has paid the debt of your sin? 
Why would you live according to the fleeting desires of your sinful inclinations when those lead to nowhere but death? Why would you not rather through the spirit who lives in you kill and exterminate sinful actions in your life? Why would you live in constant fear of earthly enemies and anxieties when you have been adopted as God's children and by the spirit within you call him Father? You have seen Jesus transfigured before you. And now you're called to be transformed. In fact, the same word that we translate in our text as transfigured is applied to you in Romans chapter 12. Here are these words from the Apostle Paul, which come to you as the words of God himself. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, here it is, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, be, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He puts it this way in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you're destined for glory, Think like it. You notice how in both those passages the, the attention is on the mind. Think this way. The world around you is trying to make you think its way. Your own sinful nature is trying to make you think in a certain way. Satan, certainly in his temptations, is trying to get you to think his way. Think the way that Christ died to enable you to think with a heavenly perspective. Think like people who are headed for glory. Jesus says this in Matthew 13, at the close of one of his parables, then the righteous will shine like sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this good news is so marvelous and good that there's no way that we could have invented it as human beings. How can it be that the Lord of glory would take upon himself human form and suffer and die for such as us? And how can it be that he who lived a perfectly sinless life would lay down that life as a sacrifice for us and and would credit that righteousness that he attained to our account so that we could be brought into your presence. Lord, help us to, to think on these things and to live as those who are destined for glory on this earth. Uh, give us fortitude and grace to deal with the suffering that will be involved as we follow you. Uh, help us, uh, Lord, by your strength uh, to be faithful to you uh, 
day by day so that we can, can be with you uh, forever in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>